The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Um, children can be uh, heading out to Children's Church. Um, if you're watching from home, and uh, we want to welcome you and thank you for doing so. Please, uh, please check in, and we'll uh, try to read your names later and let the folks here know uh, that you are at home watching. Um, so grateful uh, for your part in our service today. Now, uh, Pastor Mike is uh, on assignment today preaching at Adamsville, and uh, he's got... Uh, most of his family with him. Uh, we should also know that Allison is in Missouri uh, because uh, their daughter Alita is waiting birth. Uh, so she's been gone for a little bit and will be gone probably for a little bit more. So we want to keep the Nye family uh, in your prayers. And um, also, I uh, just want to mention that my family is here. And that's always a joyful thing. I'm smiling a little bit more because the grandkids are here along with my adult children that I love so deeply and would never replace in my heart's affection with grandchildren, except that you just do, right? <laughs> no, you, <laughs> no competition. Um, they all have jobs, and that's good. All right, um, now, uh, forgiveness for sins is our theme. You want to go to Psalm um, 85 because I want to read it and then just let you know that this gives us a wonderful overview of um, how God's forgiveness works, and we're going to dig into this a little bit along with some other wonderful scriptures uh, to help us out this morning. Um, hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky yes the lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away it's the word of the lord and now father may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight O lord my strength and my Redeemer. We have been talking about continuous spiritual renewal 
And I want to remind you that a vision for continuous spiritual renewal never, never discounts the times when God's powerful intervention brings us up to the top of the mountain in great seasons of revival. We never discount that. That could happen. That could still happen as unlikely sometimes as it may seem that God could move in a powerful way and there would be a season of massive revival of people turning to the Lord. We don't discount that. A vision for continuous spiritual renewal doesn't deny that there will be, however, times when it seems like God has disappeared completely and that we have nothing uh, but uh, barrenness and that we're in a deep valley. It kind of feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? That we're kind of in a spiritual wasteland. But a vision for continuous spiritual renewal does not dismiss the important lessons learned from either the mountaintop experience or the valley experience. Because continuous spiritual renewal says that much of our discipleship is to be lived between the mountaintop and the valley. That is where most of our life spiritually is lived. We have some mountaintop experiences we're grateful for. We have some valley experiences that we hope end sooner than later. Most of our spiritual walk, most of our journey is lived in what is often thought to be the mundane, the in-between times. Long obedience in the same direction is very often the mundane, everyday realities of life. It is what we do every day that matters. What we build our lives around. And it is then in the context of this kind of dailiness that we need the sweet fellowship of the Spirit of God to bring God's grace of forgiveness into the dailiness of our lives, into the deep areas of our lives where sometimes we're just moving along and we forget. We forget about sin. Or we have these moments of guilt or shame that kind of pop up in our lives and we wonder if God loves us at all. How could God love us? After all, we know our own history. And so we have to remember that not only is God faithful, that's what we talked about a few weeks ago, not only has Jesus come, the fullness of God in bodily form, to show us all of the fullness of God's love, but that we are forgiven by this faithful God who has been revealed to us in all of his fullness through Jesus Christ. Psalm 85 gives us then an overview of God's forgiveness. If I were to ask most Christians to give me kind of a working definition of what uh, is God's forgiveness about, they would probably lean into the kind of judicial aspect of justification by faith through Christ alone. They would maybe quote Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is absolutely true. We need to, that's a rock solid thing we need to stand on. It's, de, it's a declaration by God that if you have trusted in Jesus, I have declared you right uh, you are now uh, at peace in relationship with me. We would say, yes, I'm a sinner. I've done bad things. I need to be forgiven of my sins. 
How am I to be forgiven? Well, God has sent Jesus. He's died in such a way that my sins can be forgiven. When I trust in him, he declares me right in his sight. That is the uh, judicial part, if you will, of our salvation. A declaration by God that a sinner is made right through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Hallelujah? We keep preaching this. But the Bible doesn't teach that uh, forgiveness for sins uh, begins and ends with justification. That is an aspect of forgiveness of sins. But it is that last part that Paul mentions in Romans 5, one that we often forget about. We are brought into a relationship of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about a child that uh, does something wrong and uh, they, they, have, they have sinned, right, and need forgiveness, but that child also needs to be brought back into relationship in a loving way with their parents. And so the child may say, you know, here in their ears, you're forgiven, but not feel forgiven until they are brought right into the embrace of their loving, kind, wise parents who whisper in their ears, listen, we love you. We know you did something wrong, but we, we love you. And we want you to know that you are loved. And you may be punished for what you've done wrong, but the punishment is to teach you, to help you learn discipline, learn to obey. And through all of that, um, we love you. One is a judicial level of, of action taken, but the other is restorative. Feelings of empathy, feelings of mercy, feelings of love. And we need to remember then, and Psalm 85 really shows us this, that when God forgives, he is not detached emotionally. God doesn't just sit up in heaven, look down at his people who have sinned grievously against them, and say to them, you're forgiven, but I don't want anything to do with you. Psalm 85 teaches us about the forgiveness of God, that he did, in fact, forgive the iniquity of, of his people, that he covered their sins, that he withdrew his wrath, he turned from their anger. But then the psalmist says, we want to be restored. Will you not revive us? Will you not bring us back into a relationship by which we know and feel and understand the steadfastness of your love. And isn't that what all children need to know? That their parents love them steadfastly. It doesn't mean that their parents give them everything they want because God is much wiser to us as a parent, right? Sometimes wise parents say, we're not going to give you that. I'm not going to do that because you aren't serious about, you know, the things you've said. And it gets a little tricky there and it gets a little dicey there. But at the end of it, as we hope and we long for continuous spiritual renewal, we can bank on this, that if we in humility have come before God and confessed our sins, that it is not only just to forgive us of our sins, he is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he brings us then into this wonderful relationship of peace. These 10 Psalms that we are in one way or another looking at in this particular series are like a treasure trove of right emotions that God expresses towards his people. That's why so much of the Bible is set in poetry. Because it's not just, you know, uh, words with meaning that are, you know, declarative words. It is a God who feels 
It is a God who reaches out and loves, and he wants those things expressed. And the psalmist, you know, this, the collection of psalms is one way that God, his feelings towards us are indeed expressed. So one thing that forgiveness does is to restore as it declares. Now, we want to be very clear on this. God doesn't declare us forgiven and then sits around and waits for us to, you know, do better on our side. Nor does God wait for us to do better on our side and then declare us forgiven. God is always taking the initiative to restore us into relationship with him. And so as he uh, declares us to be made right in his sight, he is also working to restore us. And in a sense, full restoration is something that we grow into. And by the way, we must battle for if we are going to be whole as we relate to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, as we get into this series down the road, we're going to be talking about some very practical ways we as Christians must be disciplining ourselves so that we walk in our salvation in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. So it's got to be more than a Sunday morning, as important as Sunday morning is. There has to be an investment daily into the relationship of peace that we have with God so that we continue to grow in this relationship of restoration. So just as a child is restored in relationship with a parent, they may get a hug, they may get a kiss, they may be held closely through tears of regret and remorse, I want you to know that you and I are cared for in the same way by God. This God of great power and might is a God who is so very personal and kind and loving. But you know, there are some sins that are so grievous, are so difficult, that they tend then to plague us throughout our lives. They plague us in this regard. We hold on to shame, uh, or we hold on to guilt. And we wonder, has God indeed forgiven us? How could God forgive something so grievous, so hurtful, so destructive? And, and there, there are ways in which Christians are, um, you know, deterred in sanctification and growth and service to the Lord because back here, they still are wondering, they're still uncertain, uh, has God indeed forgiven? And so we've got to think a little bit more broadly out of Psalm 85 about the forgiveness of God and restoration through his Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to just jump back uh, to Psalm 80, and we were there a few weeks ago, but I want to revisit verse number 17. Verse 17 uh, is a hint, all right, uh, when he writes in Psalm 80, verse 17, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. This is a hint. Do you like hints? You know, sometimes maybe in a murder mystery you get hints as you go along. I like smell hints. So like when I walk out into the mall, which I rarely do anymore because there's so little there anymore, except at the right time you're going to get the smell of freshly made popcorn 
at Regal Movie Theater Cinema, and I now, uh, uh, somebody's told me that you don't even have to go to the movies to get the popcorn, you just go in and buy the popcorn? How wonderful is that? How great is that? That's almost like when they put wheels on luggage, you're just going like, why didn't they think of that sooner? And I have to go to a movie and just get the popcorn. It's a hint. And like I just smell my, like use my nose and smell my way along the corridor and tell you like, I know where I'm going. I'm going towards the popcorn. It smells so good. That verse, verse 17, is like that. It, it, should, it should make, wait, wait, what does that mean? That there is someone that he has his hand on. Someone that he's made himself strong with. This, of course, becomes a fuller theme as the apostles reveal then that uh, forgiveness that is found in Jesus and the accomplishment of Jesus is indeed this man, uh, the son of man that God has made strong for himself. And this is why the preaching of the cross must be done to its fullest dimensions. There is no aspect of the cross that we should shrink back from neglect or ignore or think unimportant we have to preach the cross to its fullest dimensions and when we only preach it with little bits and pieces we lose the fuller meaning the meaning of forgiveness rooted in the reality of what jesus did both in payment for sin and in restoration of relationship with a holy god so what about this hint? What about this little thing we sniff or see here in Psalm 80, 17? What does it mean? It's a rather oblique statement, isn't it? It needs a little bit of clarification. Who is the man of your right hand? Who is the son of man that you have made strong for yourself? Well, many times in the Gospels, we read that Jesus identifies himself with this very title, son of man. Son of Man. Of course, it is most famously found in the book of Daniel. When Daniel sees the vision of the one like a son of man, he's coming to the Ancient of Days. He is being presented before the Ancient of Days. And to the Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which should not pass away. His kingdom is one that should not be destroyed. Now, if you follow like a thread, the poetic mentioning in verse 17 and the prophetic verse of Daniel 7 and then the self-identifying statements of Jesus in the gospel, we can arrive confidently at a truth. That God's forgiveness for sins not only is a judicial reality by which we are declared right, and it is not only a restorative act of God bringing us into relationship with himself, but that relationship has a purpose, and that purpose is that in the name of Jesus, we move out in the victory of Christ in the dominion language that we read not only in Psalm 80 and Psalm 85, get clearer in Daniel 7, get a whole lot clearer with Jesus, but then really get clear in Hebrews chapter number 10. So, you got to go now all the way to the back of your Bible, and I want you to think with me for just a few minutes here in Hebrews 10, and we want to connect these dots. 
Because if we say, oh yes, I remember that. Jesus died on the cross. My sins are forgiven. I get to go to heaven. That shrinks the cross. That's not untrue. It just doesn't get to the fullest dimensions of the accomplishment of Jesus and at his cross. Hebrews 10 helps us. It's part of the thread. It's the popcorn smell for me that gets me from Psalm 80 all the way then to Hebrews 10. Let me start with verse number 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, I'm going to walk us through this devotionally, all right? I'm just going to read the passage. I'm going to do some comments. When this is being written, um, priests, Jewish priests are still going to the temple, making sacrifices for the people. It is the second temple, right? The first temple Solomon built was destroyed. A second temple was built. It stayed uh, during the time of Jesus and through part of the apostolic age until it was destroyed. But when this is written, priests are still going in, offering sacrifices. But what does the writer of Hebrews say? Even though they repeat them day by day, day by day, day by day, they can never take away sin. Why? Well, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, you get, you get to contrast from verse 11 to verse 12. There is sacrifices repeated day by day, over and over and over again. But in Christ, who offers then a one time single sacrifice for sin what does he then do he sits down at the right hand of god and what is he doing as he is at the right hand of god he is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet that is dominion language that is saying that what we read in psalm 80 is fulfilled in christ that what you what I read from Daniel 7 is fulfilled in Christ. That Jesus, when he identifies as the Son of Man at the right hand, from Psalm 80, and Daniel 7, the Son of Man, and he declares himself to be the Son of Man, his purpose is then to die, not only to forgive us for our sins and restore us in right relationship with God, but then to bring together heaven and earth in full unity through the witness and work of his people who now are forgiven and who are restored. And in doing so then, Jesus is hard at work bringing together all of God's purposes and plans for him through the outpouring of the Spirit on the church who then give faithful love and service and work and witness to what God has done in Christ. Now, it is vital that we grab this in verse 14. For by a single offering, what has Christ done? He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you lack confidence in your life concerning the forgiveness of God towards you in Christ for your sins... If something is gnawing at you of shame and guilt from your past, I want you to look again at verse number 14. It is by a single sacrifice he has done what? Perfected 
for all time those who are being what? Sanctified. There is, and we're going to get to this in just a minute, the already not yet reality of our salvation. I am complete in Christ now. And yet I am being perfected in Christ as well now. There is a sense in which God looks at me complete in Christ, perfected, my sins forgiven, everything I have done wrapped up in Christ, died for, paid for, restored now in relationship to God. And so anything that comes up from my past, shame, guilt, feelings of worthlessness, how could I have ever done that? What was I thinking? What was wrong with me? That is not from God. And the only way that can be dealt with, though, is through God and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, who is perfecting us for all time, those who are being sanctified. I have been reading Hebrews 10 through 12 almost daily for about six months now, and what it has done in my life has helped me not only see the superiority of Jesus as the alone Savior, but how there is no possibility that salvation could come in any other way except through his death for us. If we, as God's people, are going to experience the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit, who flows like a river of life, bringing salvation to us, bringing continuous spiritual renewal, we have to keep reading and rereading and rereading and thinking about passages like Hebrews 10 through 12, or you can go to Romans 1 through 8, or Ephesians 1 through 3, or Psalm 80, or other places. But you've got to keep there. You've got to keep there. And you've got to keep in fellowship with, then, the Spirit of God. Because although salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone, it's a judicial declaration. It is a restorative act but it is also the working out then of salvation towards Christ bringing all things together and we exercising his rule and reign here on earth. We live then in what is often referred to as the already and not yet of our salvation. I want you to uh, kind of keep yourself, uh, uh, your bookmarker here in Hebrews 10-ish but I need you to go back to Psalm 85 uh, because Psalm 85 uh, makes uh, two rather dramatic claims uh, that need our attention. Uh, the first is found in verse number 10. So Psalm 85, verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other that's a very eloquent beautiful poetic thing to say but it's also very dramatic what does it mean but then the second thing in verse 11 that faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky so what are we to make of this i think the psalmist uh take is taking us into what Again, many theologians have called the already and not yet uh, the tension of our faith, that we're perfected for all time and yet we are being sanctified, that Christ is seated on his throne, ruling and reigning all things, but he is still bringing things under his feet like a footstool. 
So simply stated, some things are completed and yet at the same time not seen by us as necessarily being completed. The goal of God's forgiveness is full restoration, but we don't always feel fully restored. Uh, The goal of salvation is heaven and earth coming together, new creation, living out God's salvation, ruling and reigning over all things, and yet it doesn't seem like that could even be possible. How can we talk about something like that at a time like this, when the world seems completely chaotic and out of control? So what Psalm 85 does is it takes us into the life of faithful Israelites. And and I think the psalm is set after uh, the deportation, but then also after the restoration, when people were coming back to the land. They had been in exile, they've returned from exile, but um, they better not take their restoration for granted, right? Uh, Instead, their desire then is to act with steadfast love and faithfulness toward one another. Now think about, you're an Israelite, your ancestors, or maybe you yourself have been in captivity, and you've been brought back, but you're not fully restored. This is why they're praying, right? Earlier in the psalm, what are, what are they praying? Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. Uh, they want to know that God's favor is upon them. They want to be revived. In verse number six, they want to be shown that steadfast love in verse number seven. And yet, even though it's not fully encompassed in their view, how are they living? They're living faithfully towards one another steadfast loving one another righteousness and peace as it were kissing one another living faithfully as israelites under god's favor even though things are not fully complete over things are not really whole faithfulness is springing up from the ground righteousness is looking down from the sky there is a way in which they are living as faithful israelites one towards another They are home in the land which God has promised to them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for the psalmist, in one sense, he would say, there's no better life than the life that we now have under the umbrella of God's blessing. That is one way to understand that. That Israel had experienced something horrific, and yet God's blessing had brought them back into the land. And they had better pay attention and obey they'd better live together in peace and harmony but those expressions also have a much fuller meaning you see for in christ jesus we see that god's steadfast love and faithfulness have met we see that in christ righteousness and peace have kissed what the faithful israelite hoped for and could not fully see is ours fully to enjoy That is that God's favor has come in the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. That God's larger goal to bring heaven and earth together through Christ is being completed. The great dominion language of uh, Daniel 7 is being worked out by Christ in Hebrews 10. And it has to become our vocabulary. It has to become our vocabulary. The church although marginalized, is not a defeated institution. 
the church, although shoved to the boards, out to the edges of culture and society, is not viewed that way by God, and certainly not viewed that way by Jesus, who is the head of the church. We get our eyes looking to all the wrong things. And we need to think about, how did a faithful Israelite live when it looked like everything was lost? How did faithful apostles live when it looked like everything was lost? How should the church live today when it looks like everything is lost? I told you to go back to Hebrews 10. Just jump back there very quickly with me, and let me just pick up the, the, the rest of this theme then with the uh, dominion language that we have when we have Christ not only by a single sacrifice uh, paying for our sin, but he sits down at the right hand. He waits from that time until his enemies are being made a footstool for his feet. And how is that happening? Well, look down at verse number 19. On account of these things, brothers, and, and, and the writer of Hebrews has mentioned the Holy Spirit in verse 15, bearing witness to us about the work of Christ and our sins being put away. And verse number 17, verse number 18, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers. Now, the therefore not only refers to the work of Christ in saving us, but also in the work of Christ who is exercising dominion over all things. We have what? Verse number 19. Confidence. We have confidence. And if there is one thing that Christians need to act with today, it's not pride and arrogance and being boisterous and loud, but we need to act with confidence in what we know to be true about Christ. We enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way that he's opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we meet there the great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, what are we to do? Draw near with a heart, a true heart, full of assurance, hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, and there we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is what? Faithful. See, two weeks ago, the faithfulness of God. Last week, the fullness of God revealed in bodily form in Christ, who fully paid everything, is what then delivers confidence for Christians to know that their sins are forgiven, to know that they are restored, to know that they are not defeated in this life, but indeed are what? Exercising the dominion of Christ seated on his throne that then pushes us forward to do what? In verse 24, let us do what? Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. If we were not victorious in Christ, there would be no reason to say to you, hey, please send a card to Betty Wood. Please help out with Sunday school. Help Becca out with mops. Help out with children's church. Come, do something. Get busy. Do so if, if we were a defeated group. But we're not. If we sit under the rule and reign of Jesus, who indeed fulfilled the prophecy of Daniel and was given dominion over all 
things, people, time, kingdoms, disease, war. And it is in his dominion then we, we consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. It is under his rule and reign, not just under the forgiveness of sins, but under the rule and reign of Christ and that we don't neglect to meet together, as apparently was the habit of some. But you don't go to church just to mark the box, do you? You go to church to encourage one another. You go to church to encourage one another specifically with two things that are within the context of this chapter. That we are forgiven. That, you know, I don't, need you to tell, I don't need to tell you all of my sins. And you don't need to tell me all of yours. We're just going to assume, right? That we're all sinners in need of salvation. And to encourage one another, hey, we've been saved. But then for those Christians who are struggling with God's love. For those who are unsure, what does it even mean to have forgiveness of sins? We encourage one another. And then with dominion, we encourage one another, we remind one another that as broken as this world is, as unloved as this world seems to be, as disregarded as the church may indeed be, we encourage one another with the day that is approaching, the day that is drawing near, and that is the day when all of the enemies of Christ are under his feet and the glorious Lord steps forth and then it's all put together and we are ushered into this wonderful fellowship all eternity together. You see, as forgiven sinners, we were brought out of exile, but we have returned home to God. And as we have returned home to God in a fully restored relationship, through forgiveness of sins, which is ours in Christ, we can use the language of Psalm 85. Lord, restore us. We need some help here at Durkytown and St. James. Lord, revive us. We need to be encouraged. We need to be helped. Lord, you're favorable to your land. You care about us. You want us to prosper. You want us to have a life that is, that is fervent and full of energy and full of excitement. Oh, Lord, would you renew us? Would you revive us? It all comes together in Christ. Already, in one sense, yes, accomplished. And yet, by faith, we live in the not-yet reality of it. The church, then, the church, then, is the place for followers of Jesus to gain confidence, not only in God's forgiveness. The church is the place where we celebrate God's forgiveness, but the church is also the place we encourage one another to know that the day indeed is drawing near. The point of the church, as it was for an Israelite, is to live confidently in what we know so that we might practice our faith as we encourage one another because the day, indeed, is drawing near. Now, let me invite you into this. Don't let this just be words that are shooting out. Let me invite you into this. Let me invite you into the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. For it's not by works of righteousness which we've done. It's according to his mercy he saved us. 
Let me invite you into the full restoration of God's love and remind you that there is no sin so great that not only God uh, is unwilling or unable to forgive, but that could keep you from him in a relationship of love and restoration. And let me invite you into the full work of the cross, which includes the dominion of Jesus being exercised in the world in which we presently live. We're going to celebrate it here at the table in just a moment. What does it mean that we've been forgiven? It means that Jesus came, rejected the ideas of men, and died in our place, a sinner's death, body broken, bloodshed, so that we might not only be forgiven, but be restored. And as we are restored, that then we might go out in his name and live the victorious life he has given to us. I pray, O oh God, for any Christians in this room still weighed down by guilt, still weighed down by shame, something in their past, something that happened, and they can't seem to move beyond it and don't really maybe even think that they are forgiven. Let them see all of the wonder of the work of the cross to its fullest dimensions. I pray for discouraged Christians, Christians who are wondering, how's this really going to end? And maybe they're doubting and they're not living with confidence. Let them see Christ today. The Son of Man lifted up, the Son of Man glorified, the Son of Man seated, enthroned, coming again. And now, Father, I pray for any who may look at their life and wonder, have their sins been forgiven? Would today be the day of their salvation? Oh, Spirit of God, would you be at work then in a mighty and powerful way? We'll give you a few moments to process these things and to think about them as we prepare ourselves for the table of our Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeetown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeetown, please visit our website at www.durkeetown.org.